Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychotherapist, fellow podcast host, and writer, Todd Barretts. Hello, Todd, and welcome to the show. Hey, Zach. Glad to be here. Our topic for today is Sex 101. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about Todd. For those that don't know, Todd Barretts is a licensed individual and couples psychotherapist, podcast host, and writer who specializes in sex and relationships. He has a bachelor's degree in cultural psychology from New York University and a master's degree in mental health counseling from the University of Miami. His podcast, Your Diag Nonsense, focuses on relationships, sex, and all the other nonsense that accompanies the human condition. Hello, Todd. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. Doing well. Just another day and my COVID reality. Yeah, it's true. It's a new world we're living in. And before we get into sex, I want to talk a little bit about love because you do write that relationships are the cornerstone for meaning and joy in our lives. And I know many people might think rather differently. They might think money is, is the most important thing for meaning and joy in our lives, for example. So why is it that you think that relationships have such an influence on our own identity and well-being? Well, a, a wide variety of things have an impact on how we experience our realities. So it's not to say that they don't, like things like money certainly can help um, and a certain amount of money really does make a difference. But when it comes to the real meaning uh, that we experience in our lives, it really is the relationship that brings the biggest punch. You know, when you go to a funeral, you know, you don't hear people talking about their bank uh, balances or mm -hmm. the hours they worked, um, et cetera. You know, you, you hear they were a mother, a father, a child or whatever. And that's because the, the most meaning that we get is from the connections that we have. And so oftentimes when people hear relationships, they think adult partnerships, so marriage or um, boyfriend, girlfriend, et cetera. But when I say relationships, I mean like literally all types of relationships. So that can be with the person working at the grocery store. It's not an intimate relationship, but there is a relational dynamic. It can be with a friend, a partner, a fuck buddy, or a spouse. So all relationships really determine how we feel day to day because we live in a relational world. And so that's that's what I mean, is that the, the real quality, the experiences that we have and how we evaluate them are often so much tied to how we experience our relational worlds. That's such an important distinction that you're making because I think when a lot of people hear the word relationships, they do immediately think about a boyfriend or girlfriend. And then if you ask somebody if they have somebody in their life they care about, they say, oh, no, I've been single for a while. But of course, there's all sorts of relationships that support our well-being on a day-to-day -day basis. So what would you recommend for somebody to like increase the quality of those relationships, even the relationship with the cashier at the grocery store, like you mentioned? How do we increase the connection that we feel in this relational world that we live in? Oh, my God, that's a really <laughs> um, that's like that's a very good question, but a, but one with a huge answer um, that I probably cannot 
fully capture. But so it's a process. First of all, we often just don't think about relationships. We just participate in them and we kind of enact what we think we want. And we kind of, most of us do participate in relationships somewhat impulsively and blindly. And that's not a criticism. It's just, we are all to some extent on autopilot. And that's just because that's how we've learned to interact with people, the world, and ourselves. From day one, you know, we don't really get a formal or informal relational education. So the result is that as we continue to grow up, you know, we don't actually pause. We don't use curiosity. We don't think about relationships like we would, I don't know, learning how to read or write. And so I think then that means that most of us are on autopilot. But so if you if you want to learn how to be a better relational person, that's just what you have to do. You just have to learn. And it's kind of like any activity that we might apply a learning framework to. Um, and the more we learn about it, the better we get at it. And that's not to say that you can become perfect or that that should be the goal or that it's a final destination. That's the only difference with relationships versus something like dancing or tennis um, is that, you know, sometimes with dancing or tennis, you know, the more you practice, the better you get um, and you can become a real pro. Uh, but with relationships, it's, it's less of a final destination of pro and more of just an ongoing process of learning. So how do we get better at relationships? We have to learn about how to do relationships, how to do intimacy, how to interact. And so the first place that I usually direct people there um, is to themselves. And that's not necessarily saying, you know, you have to have a better, a good relationship with yourself before with somebody else. It's more so I'm focusing on a mindful self-awareness of who we are, you know, of what we like, what we don't like, what makes us upset, what doesn't, what makes us happy, what makes, what turns us on, blah, blah, blah. So self-awareness is, I think, a, a really huge starting place. So you're saying most people sort of enter into the relationships rather unconsciously, rather on autopilot, and we have to bring mindful self-awareness and also just an intention to increase the quality of those relationships for the relationships to get better. And you just lamented the kind of lack of formal education that we get around relationships. And before we get into Sex 101, let's talk about like Love 101. So if there was like a love school or if there was like a love course or relationship course that someone could take in high school, perhaps, or university, what are some things you think might be taught in that course? You know, I do think that a relational curriculum would be great to have in schools. First, acknowledging that to some extent we've all uh, and the same thing kind of goes with sex too that we'll talk about is that to some extent we've all been repressed relationally and sexually, that there's been some way where we learned that something about relationships or sex is wrong. And so with the relational component, that being, you know, actively talking about the relationship that you're in, communicating and the other variety of things that can improve relationships, like developing a sense of self-awareness. So first thing I have to do is uh, recognize that we've been kind of sold uh, a false bill of goods. Uh, so we need to kind of pause. Um, and that would, that would really be the first place is really recognizing that there's something to learn. I'm sure that you've interacted. I've interacted with many people who, you know, think that they are a, that they can do no harm. They're doing what they should be doing relationally. Uh, but anyway, so getting to a point where you can develop a sense of self-awareness around who you want to be relationally, and that again would be the place that I would start. So we're gaining a sort of self-awareness, and I'm sure this really applies to people's sex lives too, is many people you know, feel a sense of dissatisfaction in their sex lives, but they don't fundamentally know what it is that they want and what, what it is that they are trying to achieve. 
And before we talk about what are some steps we might want to practice in our sex lives, I want to talk about just this idea of Sex 101, because I think it's fascinating that you have this online course on your website called Sex 101. And my question is like, well, why would someone need to take a course on sex? Isn't it all pretty self-explanatory? Isn't it just rooted in our evolutionary nature to uh, have sex with one another? (laughs) I haven't encountered somebody that doesn't need some kind of sexual awakening. I don't even, I don't even like that word. Um, liberation. I don't know. You can pick the word. But I think to some extent, just like with relationships or with any kind of human experience, we're going to experience challenges. And so we have to learn how to work through them, uh, learn how to be kind to ourselves when we face them. And also learn how to change. And so sex is is no different. But I think oftentimes people do think about sex as just this given, um, this organic thing that just happens. You know, sure, it takes place in our bodies. It's a physiological experience, but it's mediated, influenced heavily by culture, our emotions, our relationships, the COVID, you know, everything. So sex is, if anything, more cultural, more emotional than it is biological, natural, or something based on about evolution. So you just mentioned that in our sex lives, we will experience challenges. And as a sex therapist, I'm sure you have many people walk into your office and you help them with their challenges in their sex lives. So what are some of the most common issues that people do step into your office with? There are so many. You know, I think the the first one, let's say with couples, the most common is no desire. So there's one partner that has high desire, one partner with low desire. And for some couples, this has gone on for years to the extent where they might not even had sex for years, any kind of touch, or they do, and it's not enough for the other partner and they feel um, undesirable because of it. Um, So that's, I I get that a lot. And I see that with mostly every single couple that I see. And um, that's because when there are two people in the room, that means there are two people with specific histories, two people that have learned how to become sexual in a certain way two people with a variety of turn-ons and turn-offs, and two just different people. And so there's some kind of thing out there, that myth, that people believe that they should be exactly the same as their partner sexually. And if they're not, that something is wrong. And it's very rare that I see couples that are 100% matched sexually in their desires. So that's the most common thing that I see. I see it often, I hear it often in my practice online. Always. Let's tackle that real quick. So there's kind of two different issues you're talking about here. One is that both couples have no desire for sex. And another is that one just wants a lot more sex than the other one. So let's talk about the former, because I think many relationships do experience a bit of a decrease in sexual desire and passion as the relationship goes on. So indeed, for a couple who haven't been intimate with each other for quite some time, what do you do to begin to reignite that spark between the two of them? So it's a process. I guess that what I'll do is I'll just walk you through what I do in session. So basically what I want to know, if I see a couple, um, I've seen, I recently saw a couple that came in, they haven't had sex in a couple of years, um, but they've been together for a while. And so the things that I want to know before doing anything is what was the sex like, desire like, attraction like at the beginning of the relationship? Because oftentimes, as you were just describing, it's very common, if not should be expected, that desire will decline in a long-term relationship. So like after a couple of years, oftentimes desire just kind of falls off. Um, Sometimes it's Mm -hmm. earlier, sometimes it's after six months, 
Other times it's after a transition in a relationship. Like I see many couples who start off long distance and then transition to, I never know what the opposite of long distance, close distance, (laughs) cohabitation, whatever. And at that transition, the sex dies off. And when these transitions happens, I like to say that it's a new relationship. So you can have multiple relationships with the same person and it doesn't have to mean an end. It's just a transition to a different style or structure. So that's when couples are going from open to clo- uh, close to open relationships. So monogamous to non-monogamous, et cetera. So there's a variety of different things that contribute to a decline in desire. So I want to know, was it there at the beginning? Because oftentimes, uh, and I'm always hesitant to say this, but if it wasn't there in the beginning, it's going to be really difficult to get it, to get it after a couple of years or five years or 10 years or 20 years. Because it's at the beginning where desire is usually the highest. And that's where people build some kind of sexual connection. But if there isn't any sexual chemistry, then usually it's not there at the beginning because there's no sexual chemistry. So I want to know, was it there in the beginning? And most of the time, couples will say, yes, it is. It was. And so from there... I want to assess, you know, what was the sex like at the beginning? You know, what was exciting about it? What was fun about it? What were you drawn to in the other person sexually and non-sexually? So there's a variety of information that I want to get. And so oftentimes what I'll find out is the sex was good at the beginning. They enjoyed it, et cetera. But it was confined to a specific routine. It didn't include the specific erotic aspects of sex that one the other or both like. Um, So it wasn't necessarily the type of sex they wanted to be having or the routine involved just, you know, just penetrative sex and then it got boring after a while, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, One of the most common things that I'll hear from these stories is they don't talk about it. So it's rare that I hear that couples are having conversations about the sex that they're having or not having. So once I get all that information, which there's obviously more, but those are the highlights, I start talking to each partner about what they want. And this is when the relearning kind of has to start because oftentimes um, one or both partners have some kind of shame or anxiety that prevents them from uh, pursuing what it is that they desire. So shame pursuing communication about sex, saying, I want this, you know, I want you to tie me up. It's boring when I'm on my back. I don't like it when you touch me here, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the first thing I, I really like to do is to get both partners speaking communicating, saying words, using the language that they feel most comfortable with in terms of their sexual expression. So it begins with self-awareness and then it ties directly yeah, into figuring out your answer. <laughs> <laughs> Tying into your desires. And I'm wondering if this ties into your idea of developing an erotic identity. Because you're right that developing an erotic identity is the ultimate act of self-care. So before we get into why developing this erotic identity is an act of self-care, what is a person's erotic identity? You know, I think erotic identity is this kind of catchphrase. I'm not sure if people actually have an identity. Like I, my identity as a gay man, it's likely not going to change. When I say erotic identity, I just mean kind of, let's say erotic personality. And so that's something that isn't fixed. Um, that's something that can change especially over the course of our lives during certain developmental changes, ages, et cetera. And so instead, I mean, I think we could probably, let's just say eroticism. And so eroticism is basically like anything that's exciting sexually to kind of simplify it and exciting, like in a very arousing way. So like, I don't know, Chinese food is my favorite food. When I think about it, at the beginning of the day, I am like super excited to have it. Um, and so it's it's that type of thing. So if anybody thinks about their favorite food, that the translation would be similar for sex. And the other thing I want to say is that oftentimes when people think about erotic, erotica, et cetera, 
They go straight to like, I need to have an elaborate fantasy. Um, And sometimes it is elaborate. Sometimes it's whips and chains, but other times it's, you know, a certain glance, a certain type of touch, looking at your partner's toe. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a super elaborate fantasy plot, et cetera. It can be super simplistic. It can be extremely complex. So it can really be anything you want. It's just basically something that your body really responds to in your mind that's really, really exciting. I mean, what I'm hearing from you is it's just anything that brings an upwelling of sexual energy, yeah. you know, within us is that what we consider erotic is is relatively exciting to us. And developing the erotic identity is, is of course, discovering those things that do bring up that energy w- with us. And that can also help, you know, bring passion back into the relationship. So why is developing this erotic identity the ultimate act of self-care? I mean, if we think about sexual pleasure, sexual pleasure is self-care. And if we are not um, getting in touch with something that's exciting sexually, um, we may not experience pleasure. But the more complicated version of that is that that our sexuality is connected to maybe the most vulnerable part of who we are. And oftentimes we, there are a variety of barriers to that. Like I had mentioned shame. Um, shame is probably the most common thing people experience sexually. And then I, I know that there are plenty of people, oh, I don't feel shame, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a conscious experience of, I feel so ashamed for dot, dot, dot. Um, oftentimes shame is extremely unconscious and comes and is expressed through either avoidance or we don't talk about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's still shame. If you're not talking about the things that you want, there's something blocking you, which is likely shame, anxiety, whatever. Um, so self-care in terms of dealing with some of these uh, emotional, ex- that is self-care dealing with these emotional experiences. So unpacking what that shame is, unlearning the things that you learned that were sexually repressive, de- uh, getting better connected to an empowered sense of self, uh, an experience of positive embodiment, a connectedness to your erotic self. So what it is that turns you on, all of that results in this kind of positive sense of, of being. Um, and so then therefore all of that is self-care. Mm, I love that. Sexual pleasure is self-care and sexuality is connected to the most vulnerable part of who we are. And when coming up with our erotic identity, we have to grow and go beyond our shame. So you just said how shame comes into almost everyone's sexual lives in some way. And this feeling that something about what they want and what they desire is wrong. And you write that normal or like trying to achieve some semblance of normal is not the goal. And a lot of people get caught up in what they think is normal and that the desires they have seem abnormal. So you mentioned some like goals we're looking for in developing our sexual lives, including an empowered sense of self and knowing what turns you on. But if normal is not the goal, then what is the goal? Well, the goal is whatever you want it to be. Um, When I say normal is not the goal, people come in with a lot of expectations about how their bodies should be acting sexually. So should be wet, should be hard, should be, should be, should be, Um, because that's what people learn is normal. You know, it's normal. I, you know, I see something that intellectually I know is arousing and therefore I should get aroused. And that's not really how it works, nor is our erotic lives, nor is our sexuality. So sometimes... You know, first we have to think about what is normative. And that's precisely what creates shame is the belief that there is some kind of normal sexuality. So when I say normal is not the goal, that's what I mean. You know, in terms of the expectations that we think we need to fulfill, that's not what we're after. The goal of sex is to have fun, to experience pleasure, um, to occupy our body in a way that feels empowering, 
um, to play with ourselves, to play with our partners. That's the goal I would encourage, but by all means, you know, I would encourage people to have their own goals to really allow an expand for the definition of that to be expansive. So not to be like to have an orgasm or to make my partner turned on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To really develop something that's expansive, broad and robust, like just pleasure, fun, et cetera. Because once you start putting parameters around your sexuality, that's when shame starts coming up because rarely is our sexuality something that's predictable uh, in that sense where, you know, we'll always be able to do one thing or another. So I like what you just said, first of all, around dropping the should, you know, saying our sex life should be this and should be this. And also almost dropping out of the specific, right? Like the specific mechanics about how the genitals are supposed to be working and just dropping into setting the intention for pleasure and fun and playfulness and just connection, if that's what you're looking for with your partner and bringing all these positive qualities into it. So if we're not focusing necessarily on the specifics, mechanics of sex, what are some things that we should be focusing on that we would learn in a sex 101 class? Okay. Well, in my course, it's informational, instructional, um, and experiential. So the first major part is a questionnaire. So it's basically geared to help people develop a level of awareness about who they are and why they are and where it comes from sexually. So where they first learned about sex, where they first learned about their body, how they first saw their body or the lack of all of that. So it begins with self-awareness and then information to help set more realistic expectations or um, ideas about what sex is or is not. And then some of the mechanics of sex, because sometimes our bodies work in one way and not another way. And so we are going to want to work with our bodies instead of forcing our bodies in hopes that we can change them, Um, which is something I see so often is that people are turned off or not easily turned on by something and they think they're broken and they think that they should be, um, as opposed to working with what turns them on or turns them off and increasing and decreasing them as needed in order to get to the place of pleasure, arousal, and fun. So... It starts from building self-awareness and getting some information um, and then practicing. So practicing masturbating, bringing mindfulness into the experience of masturbation, focusing on pleasure. I mean, there's a ton of stuff. Does that? Yeah, wonderful. I wanted to ask you about that realistic expectations that you just mentioned. You know, some of us might know the equation that when our expectations meet reality, it equals suffering. And I'm wondering, you know, what expectations do people have about sex that's not quite serving them? And what are more realistic expectations that we should have going into connecting with other people? Well, I mean, don't have any expectations. (laughs) (laughs) None. Uh, Just don't have any (laughs) other than like to feel safe and consent and all of that stuff. You know, expectations are kind of the source of all performance anxiety or lack of pleasure and even pain during sex. So a common one that I see with cis men is that I should be hard or I should get off in a certain amount of time or I shouldn't come too soon or blah, blah, blah. And it's the existence of those expectations that actually creates the performance anxiety. So if, you know, as this guy is not getting hard right away um, and has the expectation that they should, they're going to feel anxious in response to the lack of arousal and the anxiety is going to decrease their arousal even more. And they're not going to be able to get aroused and they're going to land in a, a spiral of performance anxiety. A lot of cis women that I see have the expectation that they should just be able to enjoy penetration regardless of any other factor or variable. And oftentimes that's just not the case. And then the expectation that that should happen 
shapes the actual experience of penetration in terms of being more tense, more anxious, and then often then we'll experience more pain because they're anxious and tense. So the expectations that we have about the way our bodies act and also the way in which we expect our partner's bodies to act directly shape the physiological, our body experience of sex directly. So that's why I say, you know, just get rid of all your expectations. And obviously I don't mean that to a cartoonish level, um, but for the most part, I think people can use some, um, some common sense in terms of identifying, you know, the expectations that really do not serve any sort of pleasurable or fun purpose. Um, and that's the kind of arousal, the myths about arousal, expectations about orgasm, um, stuff like that. Those expectations are really going to have a direct impact on how we experience pleasure during sex. So no expectations, <laughs> just really. being open and curious yeah. and connecting with one another. So I know in your course, you have a ton of material. You said earlier that it's informational, instructional, experiential, many things geared to help people gain level of awareness that's so important in their sexual lives. And I'm just wondering, you know, out of all the exercises that you have in this course, what are some that you find yourself returning to most often? Or when you're working with your clients, what are some exercises you find yourself coming back to and bringing uh, into people's lives? Well, so one of the most important things, you know, mindfulness is such a buzzword. And I, I don't know if anybody follows me on Instagram, I don't like buzzwords. <laughs> um, but when it comes to sex, mindfulness is really important. Um, and if you want to just switch it out, if you don't like the word, just say focus. Because I'm sure everybody's had the experience where they're having sex or they're masturbating and their mind for a split second goes to, you know, what's for dinner or, you know, shit, I have to do that thing for work or whatever. And even in just that one millisecond, it's going to decrease your arousal, which is fine. But so mindfulness and our focus really helps develop and strengthen a muscle to bring back um, our focus to the pleasure. So focusing on our body. And so, you know, in my personal life, sexually and otherwise, um, that's something that I really, I really try to do regularly, whether it's just, I'm sitting here feeling stressed out about something, I will redirect my focus to something else, um, in my body, et cetera. Or during sex, if I'm feeling distracted by, you know, uh, it's always food, <laughs> what I'm going to have for dinner, you know, I'll bring myself back to my body, uh, et cetera. Um, and so some people are going to have, like I was saying, uh, much more sensitive awarenesses to the things that turn them off. So that's distracting thoughts. Um, that could be smells that could be, you know, what is the person wearing in the porn? I can't believe they're dressed like that. You know, what is the noise that person's making? So there's a variety of things that some people can be more sensitive to that will turn them off. And so first, you know, you know, you have to work on reducing the things that turn you off, but sometimes you can't reduce and you just have to be mindful and use focus to redirect your energy away from whatever it is that's turning you off onto the things that turn you on. Um, so that's what I focus on personally the most. And oftentimes what I really include in most of all the discussions I have with my clients around sex, because to some extent, everybody's has some difficulty or challenge staying focused on what's pleasurable. And again, whether that's because they're looking at their body and they don't like what they see or a position doesn't feel comfortable or their partner is doing something they don't like, all of that is, is taking away from their focus. So they're going to want to do two things, which is focus on decreasing as much as they can, the turnoffs, telling their partner not to touch them in that place, moving in a different position that feels better for their body and refocusing their concentration on the pleasure that they're experiencing. And so that's probably the most common and most important piece of information that I think people can get 
So if we want to improve our sex lives, we should meditate. Pretty much. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, it doesn't have time to be sitting there cross-legged for 10 minutes. I mean, you can just practice noticing, you know, when you're eating, just taste your food. You know, think about the flavors that you're tasting. Even if it's for five seconds, that's mindfulness. If you're feeling stressed out about something, just shifting away from that and just taking five seconds to breathe, that's mindfulness. So any of that stuff, if you don't feel like meditating every day for 10, 20 minutes, um, can be helpful. I appreciate you talking about this idea of one is we want to decrease the turn-offs and two, we want to increase the turn-ons. Because I think many couples and relationships don't realize all the ways that they are unintentionally turning themselves off, say, after a long day, and all the things that they could do to turn themselves on. So in your experience, what are some big turn-ons for people that they can start bringing more of into their lives? You know, I think, well, that's what we're talking about with eroticism, right, is what turns you on. So for everybody, that's going to be a it's going to be different. Some people, it'll be a noise. Some people, it'll be a certain part of their body. So it's just going to really depend. And that's why developing some kind of self-awareness erotically is important. So you know what it is that turns you on. So if you're having sex and something's particularly exciting for you, you're going to want to make note of that and do that again. If there's a fantasy that's particularly exciting, you know, you're going to want to make note and fantasize about it. Whether during sex or masturbation, doesn't matter. Fantasy can be a tool for arousal. So everybody's going to have uh, will be turned on by something. What that is, is different for each person. The reason we have my question kind of ties a little bit into a topic we discussed earlier, which was having a huge desire discrepancy in relationships. And we didn't quite talk about the solution there. So we could tackle that right now, because you talked about how shame, you know, everyone feels a sense of shame in relationships. And in the case of desire discrepancy, I could see shame kind of on both sides. The person with the lower desire thinks that there's something wrong with them and there's something they should be doing. And the person with the high desire almost feels bad about like pressuring their partner into doing things that they don't want to do. And it's somebody that they care about. And the high desire partner might also be tempted to like manipulate, what can I do to turn them on more? So when we talk about having two people with two different desires around the sexual frequency in their relationship, what's the best way to begin to tackle that? Do we want to turn off the high desire person and turn on the low desire person until they meet in the middle? Or what would you recommend? Well, it's complicated. (laughs) Uh, you know, when you have two people with different levels of desire, again, there's, there could be a whole host of reasons why, um, sometimes it's just, you know, their natural state. They're not that necessarily horny all the time. That's fine. But other times there might be a reason. And so again, neither are a problem, um, which I think is the, you know, the main thing I want to really stress here that the people in relationships often experience this as a problem. This is bad. We're not compatible. Our chemistry's not there, blah, blah, blah. And that's why, again, I want to know if it was ever there. Um, so for, but for most couples, the problem isn't the difference, it's negotiating the difference. And so that's really the first place to start. One is, okay, so well, why is there anything going on? Is there anything medical going on, you know, that's creating the low desire partner, um, is experiencing, is there something going on where they're just pissed off at their partner all the time? Um, or is it, they're just not in the mood all the time and it's just different. So I want to know why. And uh, once I know why, let's say it's just they're not in the mood all the time, you know, then comes the negotiation. Then we have to think about, okay, well, what would help get them in the mood if they were to get in the mood? 
usually there's, there's specific reasons. You know, I think that some people often think it's either, you know, they're horny or they're not horny, but there's usually some kind of reason. Oftentimes, sometimes there isn't, but for the most part, I, you know, in terms of the work that I see and the couples that I see, the people that I see, there's usually a reason that contributes to their lack of desire. And sometimes it's something discoverable. And sometimes there's just an aspect of sexuality between two people in a relationship that's unknown. And that unknown is usually always there. Instead of, you know, spending hours and hours and hours and hours working on, okay, well, why? What I'll usually do is spend some time on the why and say, okay, well, so what's going on here? What are some things that we might change, et cetera? And then I'll just assign homework activities, things for people to do in relationships. So one really common exercise is a touching exercise. And that just, it's not sex. It's just touching, touching each other, practice giving touch, practice receiving touch, practice taking touch from their partner. So I really try to start from the ground up um, and help couples rebuild their sexual connection and start having more sexual communication, more knowledge about what turns them and their partners on and off. Um, So really developing an entire map of their own and their partner's sexuality. And then from there, it's a bit more of just actually doing stuff. And that's why I like sex therapy is that, you know, oftentimes in individual therapy, it's easy to kind of get lost in the metacognitive, philosophical, intellectualizing space of our minds. Whereas sex is sex therapy is more directive and experiential. So I'll assign again, specific things. Sometimes that is sex or mutual masturbation or touching exercises on a phone app. So in the calendar, it's a slow process of reconnecting with, with each other. I love what you just said, that the problem isn't the difference, it's negotiating the difference. And I think that can be quite helpful for a lot of people in relationships. You know, they feel like, oh, we want different things. So, you know, that clearly we're not compatible. Well, we're all different human beings and we meet in relationship and it's beautiful. And as we uncover the differences, it's how we navigate them that makes the biggest difference. So thanks so much, Todd. I love hearing what goes on in your office and and hearing your perspectives on all things love and sex. And I want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Oh God, Uh, this is a big one. That it takes a lot of work, that it's ongoing, that it changes, that it's not a constant state of excitement or positivity. Thank you so much, Todd, for coming on to the show. For our listeners that want to learn more about you and work with you, how do they find you? Uh, You can find me on my website, so toddsbarrett.com or on Instagram at yourdiagnonsense. So it's yourdiagnonsense. Wonderful. Thanks again, Todd, for coming on to the show, for sharing your insight and wisdom and your experience in sex therapy. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you learned a lot. We hope you learned a lot about Love 101 and Sex 101. We hope you remember that sexual pleasure is self-care and part of your self-love practice. And it's normal to feel some level of shame in your sexual life because sexuality is connected to the most vulnerable part of who we are. And if you do have any sort of difference in your relationship, remember the problem isn't the difference. It's just a matter of negotiating the difference. And love is beautiful and incredible and amazing, but indeed it does take a lot of work. It is ongoing. It changes day to day, and we can learn to navigate those changes as well. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Todd. Thank you for having me, Zach. This was fun. 
Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 